Meet the author at the National Archives online. In this talk, Dermot Turing discusses his book, The Codebreakers of Bletchley Park. The talk was recorded in September 2020. Of course, um, Alan Turing, he, it wasn't all a sort of single-handed effort by him, all this amazing code-breaking. Could you tell us about some of the other characters at Bletchley who contributed in various ways to the success in breaking the codes? Um, for example, I was rather struck by uh, your description of uh, Dilly Knox. Uh, he sounds a very curmudgeonly sort of character. Um, but perhaps you could just tell us about one or two yeah. of these uh, characters. One of the things I wanted to do was, again, to sort of try and uh, get the focus shifted away from Alan Turing a bit. Um, Alan Turing wasn't even at Bletchley Park after about 1942. So um, most of the year, most of the second part of the war, he was... Uh, he, he wasn't there. So there must have been other people and lots of them were very clever and doing really quite astonishing things. So the book is really to try and bring them to the center stage and put them put them in the, in the spotlight a, a bit more. So you mentioned Dilly Knox. Well, he was one of the World War One veterans and uh, you're right, he's a very eccentric character. And I think by the time he was um, obviously a bit more advanced in years and, and working at Bletchley Park. And he was also dying of cancer. Um, he uh, had perhaps a bit of a reputation for uh, being being a, a grumpy old so-and-so. Um, but again, I think if the, peop the people who worked immediately with him would probably have hotly denied that and said that he was a sweetie. So it really depended who, mm. who you talked to. But Knox, Knox there's, there's a great story about Knox from World War One. Knox used to do his thinking in the bath. He had his best brilliant insights while in soaking in the in a hot steamy tub. So he managed to persuade people to get a bathtub installed for him in the Admiralty building so that he could actually do his thinking. And you, you can imagine there were sort of female secretaries running in and out and that kind of stuff. And uh, it, it wouldn't happen these days. But, no. Um, so, so no. Not, but Knox was a brilliant guy. Knox was able to, Knox was probably the first British person actually to break an Enigma machine. But he, there were different kinds of Enigma machines. The famous one that Alan Turing broke uh, Knox didn't make any headway on, but um, there were simpler versions. And the first uh, picture we had was of a simpler type of Enigma machine. So Knox was able to uh, break that and read Enigma messages, uh, which was uh, so you know he was really he was really pretty impressive guy. And um, uh, and, and, and indeed in World War Two, one of the naval battles, the Battle of Matapan, was broken by Knox uh, was one because Knox and his team had broken an Italian Enigma message that uh, uh, told the British exactly where the Italian fleet was going to be and so they were able to intercept it and basically destroy it. Um, mm. So yeah, so Knox, Knox is an important character but he's not, again he's not the only one and, and we've sure. got a whole galaxy if you like of people, um, there's always a difficult choice for people who write books to work out who to put in and who to leave out. So not everybody sure. I wanted to put in made the final cut, but 
I've tried to cover people who were great at code breaking, people like John Tiltman that nobody knows about. He's probably Britain's greatest ever code breaker. He could break codes in any language, in any system. He was quite an astonishing guy. Um, uh, and some of the eccentric people and some of the people who went on to have famous careers that had nothing to do with uh, code breaking, people have heard of, you know, people like uh, um, uh, Roy Jenkins and... Yes. Uh, and, yes. Uh, um, uh, we had uh, people like Asa Briggs, who uh, was quite yes. a character and a historian, and uh, uh, Baroness Trumpington. I don't know whether people remember her. Oh, she, yes. she stuck a V sign up at Lord King in the House of Lords, uh, so she was she was quite a character. So we got we got quite a a galaxy of people with different talents and uh, different contributions at Bletchley Park. But we've tried to tried to bring bring a sort of a uh, a bit of variety to 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 the picture so that it's not all about Alan Turing <laughs> sure yeah yeah sure no I think you and I think you do that very well actually um now what about Bletchley Park itself um because you know when I've looked at photographs of it it does seem like the most curious place um looks rather like a stately home but there's a real um architectural jumble of styles about it um, so why why did they choose um, Bletchley Park as the location for this code breaking operation? I'm fairly sure they didn't choose it on the basis of uh, its architectural merits. Um, people actually quite like <laughs> it nowadays, but in uh, it wasn't to people's taste in the 1930s. Um, it what happened was that uh, the Government Code and Cipher School was essentially a subsidiary. Uh, organization of MI6 um, and the head of MI6 wanted uh, an out of London site to put his spies on the outbreak of uh, um, uh, hostilities so they were looking around for a, a decent sized uh, piece of land um, which had obviously growth potential for uh, if, if it should be needed and with good communications to London um, and Bletchley Park was on the market because its previous owner had died and uh, the house obviously was empty and therefore could be occupied immediately and the grounds were huge so there was plenty of opportunity to put up what eventually they did which were put in huts and then later on brick built buildings to house the code breakers. What happened um, pretty soon after the outbreak of war was that the code breaking became so successful that essentially the spies were squeezed out and the code breakers took over the entire entire site and for most of the first half of the war it was a building site because they were building not just the wooden huts but then all these brick built buildings which had to be made bomb proof and so if you go and visit Bletchley Park these days, um, you'll see that there's all these not really very attractive buildings <laughs> which were grown mm. up, um, uh, you know, in an, in an emergency. But yeah, it was because it was out of town and because there were good rail links to London and most importantly, good, it was on the main um, uh, telecommunications, north-south telecommunications link was only a mile right. away. So they could... Uh, they could run a wire in and, and get get teleprinter messages and stuff down to Downing Street and, and uh, the chiefs of staff um, very quickly. 
Yeah. Yes, I see. So all those factors made it ideal, really, for this sort of secret operation. Um, well, nobody had ever heard of the place, so that was quite helpful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, now, in, in your book, you describe how Bletchley um, becomes transformed into a sort of a super streamlined uh, intelligence factory. And, uh, you know, with, with, the, uh, with the hut system and so forth. Could you just tell us a little bit more about this? Well, uh, you're right. So people will wonder why we suddenly needed all these brick-built buildings and, and stuff. And I think what happened, and, and it didn't happen overnight, but um, by the, let's say, about 1941, when in particular the Enigma messages were producing really quite a lot of useful intelligence, then the uh, old amateurish sort of, um, if you like, college common room approach to code breaking with people like Knox and Deniston who, you know, done it in a, um, in, in room 40 in a fairly sort of haphazard and, uh, if you like, academics working on their own kind of way. That just wasn't efficient and uh, there were tensions with the way that the product was made available to the military personnel who needed the intelligence and there were lots of tensions i mean one of the things we perhaps don't realize about bletchley park we think of it as being this sort of nice chummy place where all these um you know pipe smoking professors all got on sort of like a house on fire it wasn't really like that at all it was uh, from time to time there were these serious outbreaks of what effectively were civil wars within within the uh, management hierarchy. Um, and so what happened by early 1942 was that the system had, uh, the old amateurish system had basically broken down and mm. uh, something that was much more streamlined and effective was needed so they divided things up so that there were um enigma was going to be dealt with in, in what you call the hut system so there was um huts four and eight that were looking after naval uh, enigma where um hut eight would do the code breaking hut four would do the intelligence um production and then for the army and air force enigma huts three and six did the same thing so six did the code breaking and three did the intelligence production and then there were separate from that there were big organizations so that the naval code breaking of which enigma was only part had a, had its own organization and army and air force had had its own organization and then of course there were japanese codes and italian codes and uh, mm. and 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 so all these separate departments were were created and um by i would say the end of 1942 we've got this new system that's much more streamlined it was run they brought in people from industry to help manage it so that it was mm. it was run in a much more business-like and uh, effective manner yes. professors not really running the show anymore no 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 the whole thing becomes very much more calculated and uh you know yes i i understand um now earlier you um dermot you uh you mentioned you know alan turing built on the work of the polish uh cryptanalysts and uh developed the bomb 
machine, B-O-M-B-E, in uh, 19, was it 1940 that he developed that, is that right? Yes, um, I think he designed it probably at the end of 1939, and so the first right. prototype arrived in the spring of 1940. Yeah. Yes, right. Okay, well just again for um, the benefit of um, the layperson, are you, can you just explain what a bomb machine was, if possible, in simple terms? I think we're now going to get a, a slide. Here we are, which okay. you've kept, you kindly provided us with this image. Okay. Could so you explain to us? Yeah, this is a photo of the um, rebuilt bomb machine at the National Museum of Computing at Fletcher Park. So um, I encourage people who haven't been to Bletchley to go and are interested in this to go to the National Museum of Computing and then uh, they'll give you a live demo of this machine which they've rebuilt and it, it, it actually works and it'll, it'll actually crack codes for you. Um, but what you can see is that you've got these little collections of three circular things. Each of those basically is an analog. It mimics the behavior of a rotor in, in an Enigma machine. And so if you think that each Enigma machine's got three rotors in it, you've got effectively a whole load of Enigma machines all um, uh, sitting together on this. And the idea is that you can connect them up to each other and test to see whether you have found the right settings by going through every single one of the 17,000 uh, yeah, 17, odd uh, proto positions and what the machine does that's quite clever is that it will test whether you found the correct setting by comparing a probable word that you think that the intercepted message might contain so German mm. Enigma messages contained all sorts of really quite boring stuff like nothing to report or weather forecast and so if you think that the message contains the word weather forecast which it might well do because you know where it came from you've done that by direction finding you know what network it was on and so you look for the german word for weather forecast and you compare that with the intercepted ciphertext and then each one of these if you like fake enigma machines we got on this machine on this bomb machine will test whether the W in weather forecast could be enciphered as K and the E, which is the next letter in weather forecast could be enciphered as the observed um, Z and so forth. And so you just mm -hmm. test one by one each of these things. And all those tests are happening simultaneously. If every single letter could end up in the right place in the observed way, then, uh, then that's a plausible uh, setting for the, for the day. So that's basically the, um, the guys at the National Museum of Computing will be horrified by that oversimplified explanation, but uh, you can get the real story from them. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, sure. Now, um, Churchill. Churchill paid a visit to Bletchley Park in September 1941 to meet the uh, frontline staff and to, and to boost their morale. And... Uh, Following this, Alan Turing and uh, three other key staff uh, wrote a letter to Churchill pleading for more staff resources. And um, 
at the National Archives, we've got a copy of this letter, um, which is coming up on the screen now. I realize that it's difficult to make it all out with the small type, but we'll just um, flick through these, uh, there's three pages to this letter, pleading for more staff resources. And, you're, and uh, on, the, on the third page, um, the, uh, the, 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 the top signature is Alan Turing's. And um, so uh, this letter went off to Churchill, but it, um, it ruffled a few feathers, didn't it, Dermot? Um, well, it did. Can you well, tell us did. a bit more about this? It was a complete outrage because um, people may have seen that uh, the, just above the signatures, the classic uh, sign-off for letters in the mid-20th century where it says, we are so your obedient servants. Mm. Um, the four signatories may have been Churchill's obedient servants, but they were not behaving like obedient civil servants at all because they had gone completely out of the chain of command. They bypassed Deniston and uh, everybody in between and gone straight to number 10 with their uh, plea for help. And Churchill was... Um, quite horrified that uh, these guys uh, had been pleading for resources and not getting anywhere. Um, so, of course, what happened is he, Churchill gets straight on to um, the head of MI6 and says, what on earth is going on? Um, now, here's where it gets quite interesting. So heads had to roll. Um, and uh, so obviously the head that did roll was uh, Alistair Deniston, the head of the government code and cipher school head of Bletchley Park. Um, and the interesting thing was that Turing, Welshman and the other two guys who had signed the letter all thought they were going to lose their jobs because, I mean, clearly if they've uh, stepped out of line in this way, then um, you know, they're, they're obviously for the high jump. Um, they didn't. Uh, so, but... Well, one of them, Welshman, got a dressing down from uh, from um, the head of MI6, <laughs> and but I think that was as that was as far as it, it went. But uh, clearly, Churchill felt very uh, annoyed that um, his prime source of intelligence, that he was personally very fond of and sort of intellectually invested in, um, was being held up and thwarted because of bureaucracy. So yeah, it was it was it was unavoidable that there would be change after that letter. The interesting sure. thing was, that I've still really no idea how they managed to get past the Downing Street security and actually get it onto his desk, but they did. Yes, they impressive. took it. They took it right to his desk. You know, the, the, the they asset they personally they couldn't give it to him personally, but they gave it to some. Uh, staff brigadier who was uh, in, in Downing Street who promised that he would actually bring it to the PM's attention, which yeah. I mean, you can't imagine that being possible these days. <laughs> You're no, not past the no. gate for one thing. <laughs> no, exactly. This, that's really true. And in fact, um, I don't know if we might be able to show, uh, we've got a slide which shows um, Churchill's response uh, and um, and this is the note on the right to uh, General Ismay, his his military advisor, and he's 
Churchill is saying really, make sure they have all they want on extreme priority and report to me that this is being done. Um, that's what he's written there. And then he's got this, one of those famous action this day um, labels um, stuck on it. I love to see these as systematic. Um, yeah, so uh, it was a, yeah, an interesting story. Um, well, I think I've got maybe time to ask you another question, Dermot. Um, so um, when the mathematicians at uh, Bletchley began to innovate with electronic machines, such as Colossus, you write that they were, they were like schoolboys with a new toy. Over several years, Turing had developed the theory that electronic machines were programmable. Um, can you tell us um, about something about the post-war developments with computers and Alan Turing's part in this? Yeah, um, this, is, this is quite interesting because at the point where these machines, and you mentioned Colossus in particular, were being developed for code-breaking purposes at, at Bletchley, Alan Turing really hadn't got wasn't really particularly heavily involved in what was going on at Bletchley anymore. Uh, though this is one project where he did, he wasn't personally involved in things like the design of Colossus, but he, he was sitting on a committee that was overseeing that and other machine developments um, at Bletchley. So he was, he was fully aware of what was going on. And there was, a lot of discussion going on at Bletchley Park amongst those who, particularly on the Colossus team, but others, who were conscious that you could now use electronic components uh, and connect them up to recreate in electronic logic a programmable device. And we, we take this for granted these days that computing machinery you know, you run software on it, it does a different job according to what program is being run. But if you can imagine what it was like in the early 1940s, where they did have machines for doing calculations, but these were single purpose machines, you know, you had adding right. machines. Um, and some mathematical uh, functions could be uh, analogized using, um, moving parts and uh, so you would have things like differential analyzers that were, were able to uh, do effectively compute calculus type of uh, problems but the idea that there was a single machine that would do different tasks according to the instructions that it was given that was very novel but Colossus kind of pointed the way Colossus wasn't a fully programmable computer and again uh, I'll put in another plug for the National Museum of Computing because they've got a rebuild of Colossus there as well. And so people can go and see mm -hmm. that and ask questions about how, how that actually did its work. But what you could do with Colossus was you could change the inputs by flicking switches on the back of it. And right. that meant that the code breakers... Um, many of whom were, of course, mathematicians and very excited about the possibility of programmable computing machines, uh, were trying to get rig Colossus during its downtime to do 
do mathematical functions, not code-breaking functions. It was very, very hard to get Colossus to do this stuff, but apparently they could get it to do uh, long multiplication. <laughs> but, right. I have no idea, how, no idea how they did that, but there is a story that they managed to get it to do that. But I think what you were able to see from Colossus with a bit of imagination is that the technology was there and all you needed to do was to have a logical design and then you could actually set up a programmable computer. So a whole load of the Bletchley Park folks, uh, Alan Turing in particular, but his um, colleague uh, Max Newman, uh, who was the leader of the Colossus oh, yeah. project, these guys ended up running the pioneering computer development projects in the immediate post-war period, so the late 1940s, Alan Turing went off to the National Physical Laboratory to um, build Britain's electronic computer. Note, it's singular. Britain thought it only needed one of them. Um, <laughs> Max Newman went off to Manchester University to um, develop a, a, a project there, uh, and so on and so forth. So, and, and Tommy Flowers, who was the engineer behind uh, the electronics in Colossus, was seriously in demand from all these computer projects to see if he could actually get, go and uh, lend his expertise to, to them as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I think we have modern computer design. Uh, uh, you can trace its roots quite clearly to the engineering projects that were going, going on at Patchy Park. Yeah, amazing. that's amazing to, to think about that, actually, the, the birth of the modern computer. Um, well, thank you so much, Dermot. Um, what we're going to do now, we, um, we're going to take some questions from the audience. Um, and um, so if you're, just bear with me, I'm going to put some of these questions to you. Um, uh, here's one for you, which I think you'll enjoy, Dermot. Um, and that is, um, how accurate was the depiction of the code breaking in the imitation game? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, you've probably uh, got it from me already. The imitation game uh, gives this sort of sense that the Enigma problem was so intractable that it took most of the war to get it solved. Um, that, that obviously is a little bit of a myth because the success of Bletchley Park was founded on breaking Enigma very early in the war and continuing to break it for the whole of the war. So, um, so in terms of the timeline, it's uh, not, not really uh, very reliable, but uh, we don't expect Hollywood movies to give us um, reliability. We get expect mm. to give us entertainment. But um, what I do like about the movie is that I think it, it, it covers quite intelligently a, a number of themes which uh, aren't immediately obvious. One is this question about, well, if we have d broken a, a, a message and it tells us something important about the enemy's intentions, if we act on that intelligence, will that compromise the source and cause them to change the codes and therefore lock us out of the... the lock us out of the source. I think that's a very, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's done in a slightly clunky way, but, uh, but the, theme is a, the theme is a good one. And, uh, um, uh, and, and then there's another sort of theme about which is the point you've already covered, Mark, which is about um, things like um, 
uh, the scarcity of resources and uh, finding finding that the establishment is perhaps a bit resistant to um, giving limitless people and uh, and, and uh, equipment and, and stuff in, in 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 war times because because obviously the product is secret the task is secret and so nobody in bureaucracy actually understands what's going on so there, there are some good the, thematically I like I like the idea um, the characterizations mm. are all wrong so Deniston is portrayed by Charles Dance as uh, some sort of structure um, uh, Navy, Navy character and nothing could be further from the truth and, and um, uh, mm -hmm. Alan Turing is sort of really not the Alan Turing that I've researched and uh, and not not the people that I've spoken to not the one that people I spoke to knew so um, yeah. don't 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 treat it too seriously is what I would say treat it as a fun evening but that's 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 as far as it goes <laughs> okay fair enough oh, you know fair enough um, now here, here's a question which is a bit of a challenge and um, uh, it, it almost like an essay title in a sense, but it, it, it's an interesting subject. Please, can you describe the relationship between the code breakers at Bletchley and US intelligence? I mean, obviously that's very difficult to do in uh, a couple of minutes, no, but. No, it's a good, it's, it's a good one because the, um, mm. the Americans, uh, came to Bletchley before the uh, uh, before the attack on Pearl Harbor, so at a time when America was not yet uh, in World War II, and they came to participate in an intelligence sharing uh, arrangement where essentially the Americans shared the advances they'd made on Japanese codes with the British and they brought a cop they brought one of their very few examples of a, of a thing called a purple machine where they'd re reverse engineered mm. the Japanese cipher machine which they codenamed purple and the Americans brought one of these machines uh, with them uh, in uh, as a sign of good faith uh, and in return the idea was that the uh, British would share their breakthroughs on Enigma, which they did. There were there were there were some uh, bumps in the road, as with all um, uh, international intelligence sharing arrangements. But I think we can safely say that that marks the beginning of the thing we call the special relationship, the sharing of intelligence, which has gone on pretty much uninterrupted um, uh, ever since. Uh, yes. 80, eighty years, eighty years of it, um, and. Um, so the Americans uh, not only participated in that, but they actually came to Bletchley Park. They came and they participated in the code-breaking programs of Bletchley Park. And in the reverse direction, there were people like John Tiltman and uh, Alan Turing, who were sent off to the United States to uh, act as consultants on their own on their own projects. So um, uh, I think, yeah, the story of the Americans at Bletchley is a very interesting one. And uh, and again. Uh, I think it's one that we would do well to sort of learn a little bit more about. Yes, sure, sure. Now, just reviewing some of these questions, we, there's a lot of very well-informed people out there with interesting questions, and uh, I'm rather sport for choice. Um, here's one that interested me. Um, so, did Britain have an equivalent to... Germany's Enigma machine, and did Germany have an equivalent to the bomb machine? Um, ah, well, no, that's very interesting. So the Germans, Germans had a very 
good code-breaking records, to be honest. Um, the problem with Nazi Germany is that there were too many agencies and they were all um, essentially watching their own backs as much as watching the, their um, military opponents. Um, so, and I think Germany might have succeeded better if it had actually amalgamated its brain power in the way that happened at Bletchley Park. But mm. certainly, the I think one of the reasons why the Germans felt that Enigma was secure, and they investigated its security on many, many occasions, but one of the reasons I think they were able to draw the conclusion that it was secure is that they had themselves and no joy against the British Typex machine, which worked on very similar principles to Enigma. It had rotors and so forth. In fact, Typex was an Enigma ripoff, let's be honest about it. The Brits had got hold of the uh, Enigma patents and they basically, uh, uh, in breach of copyright and intellectual property law and everything, they uh, basically ripped, ripped off the Enigma machine and called it Typex. Um, and so the Germans were getting nowhere on the British secure Typex messages. And I think it's because they hadn't imagined that you could develop a machine like the bomb, which would be able to not just find the rotor settings, but also crack the fiendish plug board. And mm. they had mechanical solutions. They would have been a, wouldn't have been daunted by the rotors problem because they were using punch card technology to do that kind of thing. But the idea of a special purpose electromechanical machine like the bomb, they had special purpose machines, but not anything quite like that. And uh, they reckoned that to use the technology that was available to them, it would not have been efficient to mount an attack on Enigma because it would just take too long to find the solution to the plug board and therefore the information would all be out of date before you'd actually found the settings. So, um, yes. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, I, I think we, again, the message on all this is that I really think we don't know enough about the German code breaking efforts and, uh, and we should not imagine that because we were very successful that they were useless that would that would be completely wrong yeah sure sure um one of our one of our uh, listeners um is says that uh, she's fascinated with the amount of research that you must have done before writing this book dermot um so she wanted to know how long did this take before you developed a plan of how the story would look and were ready to start writing? Oh, that's good. I like it when people ask me about the process, the process. Uh, yeah. of, of creating a book. The, the research here is, uh, wasn't particularly difficult because um, the uh, Bletchley Park Museum has a very, very good um, uh, record of the veterans that it knows about. And so it's quite easy to find out about interesting characters who were at Bletchley Park. So people like Roy Jenkins, for example, he'll appear on the veterans register and it's very easy to find out information about people like him. What is was a bit more difficult was trying to get hold of the women I was talking about earlier and, and to find out what they had actually done. But a lot of these code-breaking women were graduates of Oxbridge colleges. And so there is 
quite a lot of information that's available at those colleges which do things like collect memoirs of uh, written by their uh, alumni um, and uh, so lots of information there's information from the National Archives of course which uh, is why you're hosting this this evening and uh, yes um, so lots of lots of good stuff particularly on things like security the files on security breaches were great stuff um, and and also yeah. on the uh, uh, organizational warfare going on within Bletchley Park but here's the thing the the thing I, the brief from the publishers was to, and the reason I was so keen to write this, the book was to write about the code breakers. It was to write about the people that we didn't really know about. And the real challenge with writing that is that I could have written a mini biography uh, on every page of lots of different people and we would have got 200 mini biographies and I think that that would have been the most deadly, dull, indigestible thing to read. So mm. I very rapidly realized that you couldn't write, write it like that at all, even if you had got lots of interesting people. So what it had to turn into is effectively a narrative history of Bletchley Park, but illustrated with the portraits of these, these people that I wanted to, wanted to write about. And, um, well, uh, when people yes. when people have had a chance to read it, then then they'll tell me whether that works or not. But uh, um, so what we've done is we've sort of got um, little sort of pull out frames where we we talk about a particular person like Dilly Knox or Alan Turing or whoever it is, and uh, 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 and and that just sort of is, serves to illustrate the story as we, as we go through it. Sure, sure. I mean, there are so many questions of really good questions here, and I've only got time now to ask you one more. Um, but here's one. Um, could you expand a little on your comment that John Tiltman is probably Britain's greatest code breaker? Yes, he's a very, very interesting character. Um, he is perhaps not as well known as some of the others because he was slightly less eccentric. Um, uh, I think people who know about John Tiltman would probably uh, say that he had a fairly good store of eccentricities, but uh, um, he was quite an astonishing guy. Um, he started his uh, career in the 1920s and uh, he broke like everything. He could do Japanese. He was the guy who convinced uh, the management at Bletchley Park that British people who knew no Japanese could be taught enough Japanese to be able to break Japanese codes in six months when the School of Oriental and Asian Studies in London was saying the minimum training period for anybody to even become vaguely uh, proficient in Japanese was two years. So he got this six-month course going because you didn't need to speak Japanese you didn't need conversational Japanese to do code break you just need to know what the structure of the language was and he was he was instrumental in creating secure codes for the uh, allied armed forces and he was uh, when Dilly Knox died he became Bletchley Park's chief chief cryptographer which is basically an honorific role but it meant that he was like the top dog Here's where it gets interesting. After World War II, he goes off to work for what 
has now become GCHQ. It's changed its name and now we recognize that organization. He retires from GCHQ when he reaches retirement age, at which point he goes off to work for the NSA uh, in, in America and carries on code breaking for, for like the next 20 years. It's really quite, really quite extraordinary yeah. career. So he, he, know, he knew where all the bodies were buried. You know, he'd broken everything. The Russians, the Japanese, the, the German systems, a whole range of diplomatic and, and military systems all, all over the place. Uh, quite, quite the most extraordinary uh, career of uh, um, being able to um, break codes. There is just one that defeated him. And that was, there's a thing called the Voynich Manuscript. And he couldn't break that. And it's probably because it's not actually in code. It's just a, it's a funny thing that lots of code breakers have had a go at, but he couldn't, he couldn't master it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dermot, for um, being our interviewee tonight, you know, and for explaining complicated concepts in a, in a really easy to understand way. I think it's a real skill and a gift that you have actually for doing that. All too soon, um, it's come to an end. But if you'd like to know more about the characters from Bletchley Park, then do buy a copy of Dermot's book, The Codebreakers of Bletchley Park. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>